Welcome to the Biology Society of South Australia podcast, where we will be bringing you conversations on all things biological in our state. Today's guest is James Trezice. James is a PhD student at the University of Adelaide studying fire ecology in the Flurio Swamps. He is also the current president of the Biology Society of SA. James, thanks for taking the time to join me on the podcast. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. It's exciting stuff. It sure is. Yeah. So, um, just tell me a little about yourself. How did you get into studying fire ecology? Yeah, um, so I started doing my honours with Dave Payton at the University of Adelaide um, a long while ago, maybe four years ago. Um, and there was always this idea to protect revegetation on Kangaroo Island. So some of these huge reveg sites that they put in, they're constantly concerned about them burning. And because they're immature, they're not sure if you know they're going to waste all this effort because they're not going to re-sprout or recover from seed. So... Dave and I came up with a really cool little honors project uh, revolving around that and because that went kind of well and I enjoyed it and I loved working in science, I decided, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a PhD on something similar and then, yeah, that kind of led to me to the Flurio, so. That's very cool, that's very cool. Yeah. So, tell me a little bit about your, your PhD site, so the Flurio Swamps, you know, yeah. this is a, a very rare community. Yeah, they're there very are, special. There are less than 1% of permanent wetlands left in the Southern Matlofty Ranges. Yeah. And I believe your site is a peat bog, so a subset of that 1%. It's a very restricted and endangered community. Do you want to tell me a little about that? Yeah. Um, so, unfortunately, a lot of these swamps, uh, obviously the land in them and around them is highly valuable, um, especially for grazing, uh, for cattle and the like. So, of course, they're, they're clear, they were heavily cleared um, and then... There's a lot of hydrological changes going on as well. So it's just further threatening them, um, degrading them slowly over time. So it's it's not just that we've lost them, it's that we're actually continually losing them and they're constantly degrading. So Right, right. Yeah. So very, very important. So the, the fluoro swamps, they're critically endangered community, is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So those peat bog swamps are a critically endangered yeah. um, community. Right. Yeah. So James, tell me a little bit about your project. What have you been doing in the swamps? Yeah, so I've actually been burning a few wetlands in the area. Um, it sounds like an odd thing to do, <laughs> but these wetlands actually do need fire at some point in their life. Um, so my PhD project kind of started because all these wetlands were kind of fenced off at the same time in time. And that means that after, say, 100 years, they've all reached the same successional level. So the idea being that plants that you know survive better without disturbance then become so dominant that every other species becomes outcompeted and because that's happened at such a globe or such a giant scale so all of the flurio you're ending up getting a whole bunch of those species then becoming extinct and going extinct one of those species is herbertianus so this is the yundi guinea flower uh, it's a beautiful little yellow flower um, little shrub you know maybe maximum knee height sort of thing um, and unfortunately, this is one of those species that kind of only can survive in disturbed areas such as, you know, after fire or after some kind of physical disturbance of the soil. So it's an early successional species. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's exactly right. So yeah. the, the problem you're having is you, we've got these swamps. They're in the, the late successional stages. The, the dominant plant is coral fern. Coral fern, yeah. Coral glycenia. Fern. Glycenia, yeah. yeah. So the glycenia has become monodominant you're not getting the regenerations of some of these plants. So the idea is you put a fire in yep. and what happens? So after these fires, the probably the most important thing is that reduction in competition. 
So by removing coral fern and some of these other species like tea tree, you're then giving opportunity to those ground layer species to germinate and to then survive. So not only is fire providing the opportunity for them to emerge, it's also providing cues as well. So a lot of our seeds actually have dormancy mechanisms. Um, again, with that herbertia species, it's got a morphophysiological dormancy. And that just simply means that it needs something to activate its seed and to begin that germination process. And in this species case, that's actually smoke. So not only is that fire providing the opportunity for it to emerge, it's providing that initial cue for those seeds to germinate. So it's pretty cool little two-factor thing yeah, there that they cool. need. Yeah. So there are lots of Australian plants that have a fire response. And, yeah. Um, the initiation of germination from a fire cue, that, that is quite common. But how did you determine that in your study? Did you do experiments? Yeah, so we've actually been bagging a whole bunch of plants and collecting their seeds. So we'll put like a little cloth bag around a whole bunch of flowers, come back in a couple of months, collect their seeds, and then we'll process them in a lab. Um, and so we'll do a whole bunch of treatments to them. So, you know, we'll put them through an oven at a certain temperature. Um, we'll run them through smoke water. And from doing experiments like that, it actually showed, yeah, that we had a huge increase in germination because of smoke. I think we we're getting something like 2% germination with just water um, with the Herbertia tenua seeds. And then once you put smoke in, we we're getting something like 60%. So wow. there's obviously something going on there. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. So is it is it a chemical thing? Are there chemicals in the smoke that are triggering this, this response? Yeah, it, it's actually a bit of an abrasive effect. Um, we're not sure entirely how it works, but there's a chemical component to smoke that's um, causing kind of think of it as small cracks in the seed that's then right. allowing water in and starting that germination process yeah that's really fascinating yeah, yeah. so you had a, a market increase on the germination of hibertia tenuis did you do other experiments on other native seeds to see how they responded are there plants that responded negatively to a fire yeah so i didn't do it exactly on their seeds but i also took soil cores in the area um so just little sections of mud <laughs> from different wetlands in the area and then I smoked and heated half of them and then compared them to a control sample. And so what this did was it allowed me to look at a whole sweep of species as opposed to just one by one. And although it wasn't as direct as looking species by species, it kind of gave me an idea of how the community would respond to a fire. And so it showed that, yeah, obviously Herbertia tenuous was going to come up heaps more so. Um, it showed that species like Drosera binata, a lovely little carnivorous plant, was going to love fire. And just a whole bunch of species that weren't present in the control samples ended up coming up in these fire samples. So, so. you noticed a distinct difference between oh, yeah. the seeds in the seed bank and the standing vegetation. Yes, so yeah, huge difference there as well. So there could be plants that on the face of it look like they're regionally extinct, yeah. but in the seed bank they still persist. Yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah, that happens quite a bit as well. So, like, you'll have, for instance, there was an orchid at Stipaturus um, that came up that we thought was all, was, you know, regionally extinct. And after a farmer went through and plowed some land, it popped up there. So, lots of these species obviously are going dormant or disappearing in the standing vegetation, so not having parent plants anymore, but they're persisting, yeah, as seeds in the soil. So, so I guess from a, from a conservation and, and management standpoint, what, what we really should be trying to focus on is making sure that we have a, a fire regime in places like this that yeah. that 
initiate the germination of some of those possibly regionally extinct plants yeah. before the seeds actually die in the seed bank yeah. and then they're really gone right yeah for sure and we honestly have no idea how long and how how long these seeds live for like it could be a matter of you know 50 years 100 years could be 10 years we just don't know so we probably already lost a whole bunch of species and if we don't do something we're definitely going to lose more so, wow yeah so there's definitely some significant uh, management yeah management strategies that could be developed from your study definitely and by no means am i saying go out let's go out and burn every swamp i'm just saying you know we need that mosaic of age classes so we right. need some burnt swamps we need some unburnt swamps we need some swamps that haven't been burnt for 20 years but we definitely just don't need them all to not be burnt <laughs> right yeah so you're getting this huge germination in the field yep. of these plants then you've got really rare really rare orchids and carnivorous plants like drosera yep. and obviously hybersh tenuous yeah what are the threats to the survival of those seedlings that are germinating in the field yeah so if they're lucky enough to actually germinate then they have to put up with things such as water stress and obviously grazing is a big deal as well grazing from yeah so kangaroos and actually exo uh, exotic animals as well so right. yeah so some of these swamps actually still have cattle and stuff like that in them, which is sad to see right but then on top of that, um, the levels of kangaroos in the area are now way higher than what they naturally should be. And of course, after a burn, it's lovely, nice, fresh material. So all the kangaroos come in and just demolish everything. So yeah, if, you, if you're going to do a burn, you definitely need to do something to reduce the grazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my, my background is on uh, inv invasive plant species control. Mm. And when I think of a burn, I'm thinking about plants like gorse and broom these, yeah. these exotic plants that also have seed dormancy mechanisms that are triggered by fire, do you have a, a proportion of a large proportion of invasives coming up after these fires as well? Yeah, for sure. Like, not only do they love the disturbance, but like you said, they, a lot of them have mechanisms associated with, with fire. Especially so, those leguminous species, oh, right? Yeah, for sure. Like, gorse is a huge problem. They are often, even if you manage to remove gorse from a system, like a wetland, for instance, you definitely need to worry about its seed bank. And if you're going to do a fire, that might be... Well, yeah, I mean, that might be a reason why you don't do a fire in a system because you know it's just going to be too expensive to weed the gorse out later. On the other hand, I guess, I often think about using... Not only using fire as a, a tool to, to germinate those native seeds, but if you get on mass germination of something like gorse or broom, yeah. you're then, you then get the opportunity to go in there and control those, those plants and further reduce that seed bank. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, not only is, could yeah, fire be used as a, a, great point. a tool to germinate seeds, but it can be a weed control yeah, yeah, tool yeah. at the same time. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's a good way of reducing that seed bank over time, particularly if there's multiple burns. So... So, did you do burns during different seasons or is there a comparative aspect to your study? Yeah, so this is something I'm going to be doing soon, um, some more burns associated with seasons. So, I've done two burns so far. Um, one was in spring, one was in autumn. Uh, I do need to do replicates for these now, just so you know it's not just one site and comparing those two sites. But the idea being is that burning in autumn produces different results to burning in spring. And why might that be? So, a lot of the time you have species flowering and you know being in a reproductive state in a certain season. You'll also have weather influences uh, which are associated with seasons. So, if you burn in winter, uh, you're obviously going to get a colder burn because temperatures, winds, rain, um, 
which then is also going to influence how much matter, like vegetation matter, is going to be consumed by the fire. So if you burn in winter, compare that to spring, you're going to have a lot more biomass left over from the winter spring, the yeah. winter burn. Not only that, but if you burn in spring, when everything's reproducing, you're then going to lose that, you know, that season's worth of seeds and all that sort of thing. So there's going to be influence and effects from those different seasons. We're not sure what they are yet, but yeah, it's kind of one of those stay tuned, stay tuned, stay tuned kind of situations. Stay tuned. Yeah, yeah. So... Has there been much work done on wetland systems in South Australia in their relationship with fire? No, there's next to no information. Um, so you're really pioneering this field, James? Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, there's, there's information um, regarding peat bog swamps in places like New Zealand, which actually have a few of the similar species, or the same species. But in, in the fluoro uh, in South Australia, there's, there's no work being done. So I, I find it kind of ironic that the monodominant species that you mentioned, coral fern. I believe it has a, a conservation rating in our state or at least our region. Yeah, yeah. But that just goes to show you that in, in these swamps, the plants that have evolved to, and, and adapted to those conditions, they're, they're very specialized. And for whatever reason it is, swamps tend to be highly biodiverse regions. So I imagine after this burn, there's probably a number of critically endangered or endangered or vulnerable plants that have that have regenerated like the the uh thelomitra the spotted sun orchid oh yeah cyania um, yeah. yeah cyania oh, okay you. Yep, yep um do you have a favorite plant that's come back after this uh this burn yeah i, I hate to keep mentioning drosera binata but i'm in love with it. it is beautiful or even utricularia like so utricularia is this awesome little um it's kind of like maybe four or five centimeters tall if not a little bit longer um and it has this lovely pink flower that's maybe you know an inch the size of a coin five cent coin maybe and the idea is it's also a carnivorous plant but it actually feeds on things like worms and whatnot so and then there's, there's hun- yeah there's hundreds of these little species like that just come up off the fire and niche only in these disturbed areas and it's just such a shame that we've got all these wetlands um, and hardly seeing any of you know these unique species that need that disturbance. So, so, so Drosera binata might be your favourite, even though the study was on Hibertia tenuis? Yeah, maybe, maybe. It's just so damn cool. They're, they're pretty cool. I've seen your site. Yeah, yeah. It's just at a the moment, it's of a, them. a field of them. Yeah, yeah, it's very cool. It's lovely very when cool. you see it in the, um, the sun and all the little uh, sticky bits like glistening in the sun. It's beautiful. So we, we've talked about this now. Burning for ecological purposes is very successful in at least in your study site yeah but the the department seems to do most of their burning around asset protection Mm. and bushfire which is obviously really important yeah for sure do you think that there's political pressure not to do ecological burns what's your feeling after having done one and been involved in this what's the feel I think they are very keen to help. I think it's more just a resource thing. So obviously people take preference, um, which is fine. But you know, then then some of these plants are losing out, and because of the success of these burns, I do think we're going to get more. It's just you know spreading the word of that success and showing people that burning can be okay and it can promote positive inf- like impacts to the environment. It's just, it just has to be done in the right way. Right, I think there's a definitely a negative stigma there around uh, around burning um, and around fire in general. Yeah. Um, I mean, it makes perfect sense in the continent that we live in, in the yeah. region that we do. But um, do you think that people are unaware of just how important 
fire is in our flora's ecology? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I don't think there's really ready, readily available information out there in regards to, you know, what ecosystems need it and at what point in their life they need it. So, um, it, you know, I'd I'd love it if we could use this kind of information to promote promote that and make that more normal. Great. Yeah. So I've just got one more question for you, James. Has it gotten any easier for you to spell the word flurio? Because <laughs> I can never get it right. It's horrible, right? It is so bad. I have to Google it every time just to make sure I've spelled it right. <laughs> it's a horrible spelling word. So, James, if people want to find out about you, more about your project or get involved with Fluoro Swamps, how can they do that? Yeah, well, I, I constantly need help. Um, <laughs> so, volunteers are great. And the way I, f- I source my volunteers is through the BSSA. So, if you are interested in helping, definitely join the BSSA. They'll send you information via emails and newsletters and yeah, keep an eye out for my work. Um, apart from that, if you want to check out some of the stuff that I've been doing more recently, come have a look at my Twitter, ac- my Instagram and Twitter account. So I'm Trezizi on there. So T-R-E-Z-I-Z-I. Um, and I'll, you know, I'll post a little bit about what's been happening, what cool plants have been growing and all that sort of thing. And I guess um, one other way you could help out is the, the government does these planting festivals uh, usually every year. Last year, it was in June, so it'd probably be in June in 2019 again, um, but, you know, definitely have a Google. Um, and if it is um, coming up soon, I'm, I'm sure you'll, you, will you be able to put it up on, on the podcast notes or anything? Yeah, I'll, I'll make sure I include your, your Instagram and a link to the, awesome. the re- replanting day in the show notes for sure. Oh, cool. Cool, cool, cool. Well, James, thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast. It was a great conversation. Yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. It's a really good idea. Like, I hate to turn it around, but what made you come up with the idea of having a podcast? <sighs> All right. Well, here yeah, we go. Pressure's on. Pressure is on. Well, I mean, I, I just really want to be able to use the Biology Society as a, a way of distributing some of these ideas about just how interesting and, and important our local flora and fauna is because we live in an amazing part of the world with a lot of remnant vegetation which has not only amazing plants like you and I are interested in but also animals that rely on those plants and you know, you're never going to be able to conserve something unless people are aware about it. Yeah. People can only care about what they know about yeah. and they'll protect what they care about. Yeah, well said, like... And it's a great idea for promoting values like that. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, we'll do it again soon. Yeah, we should we should have an update at some point. So awesome. Cheers, Brad. Cheers. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't heard of the Biology Society before, we're an organization that's been developed to provide opportunities for students and members to gain ecological fieldwork experience. We also raise funds for research grants to support projects that benefit conservation in our state. If you'd like to become a member or find out more about the Society, please visit our website at www.biologysocietysa.com.